a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this is going to sound like a flex, and I don't mean it to, but uh, I am i am so enjoying the fall weather right now. And I know, you go on about this every year, Brian, and it's part of it's the beauty. Yes, the leaves and everything. Um, I like the shift. I like when the temperatures cool off. But can I tell you what I like best? I like when the air gets crisp and all the bugs go back to hell where they belong. That's my favorite part. So forgive me for flexing on you like that, but... Uh, that's the best part of this time of year. Anyway, let us revel in wrong think. Thank you so much for joining us today. A lot of interesting stuff going on, as always, and perhaps you uh, were privy to the emergency test, which uh, came down the line yesterday, literally down the telephone line. Still trying to make some sense out of all that. I mean, I, I saw some good humor. Bill Colley over at uh, uh, the radio station in town, where was he was saying, you know, I think the Martians did it. And I thought, that's... You know, given how much we've had revealed here in this last year or so about uh, UFOs and apparently um, extraterrestrial organic forms, I don't know. Isn't it odd that nobody really cares? With all that going on, you know, hey, E.T. is real. And everybody's like yawning. Yeah, whatever. So anyway, <laughs> right back to business as usual. So I'm not sure what to think of the test. Now, the suspicious part of me, and this is, I'm very skeptical about anything that government tells me just because, let's just say they don't have the best track record of being truthful. So I'm, I'm looking for what's their angle, okay? Why are they doing this? Why this test that reached every cell phone, every television, every radio, you know, everybody had to hear it. And I start by asking the question, are, are we supposed to be afraid? You know, is this, is this to, to get us nervous? I think I mentioned yesterday or the day before, you know, Russia doing uh, nuclear drills or nuclear attack drills with with their citizenry. That kind of ups the ante a little bit, too. It's like, oh, now are the Russians legitimately worried or are they, you know, just are they playing the same game our government is? Hey, we just want to remind you guys we're here and uh, you should probably be scared about something. I'm just, I'm very, perhaps even overly cautious whenever someone says, hey, you need to be afraid of this. And yet, I'll, I'll tell you, in all honesty, and this is with the confession that I, I really don't know for sure, you know, what's the purpose behind that test? Part of it feels like it could have just been a reminder to us that, hey, no matter where you are, no matter what screen or device or wherever you happen to be, we can still reach you. Or we're still a part of your life. That's more or less what it feels like. So, I don't know. That's it. For what it's worth, that's my, my college try, you know, to, to explain it. But we are standing at a pretty interesting precipice. And I guess I'm going to start with, with the touchy subject that, that this, is, this is probably going to make some people angry. Why won't our government allow us to even consider anything that falls outside of their definition of, you know, what we should think of Russia. Case in point, you know, Tucker Carlson tried to interview Putin. He was thwarted by the U.S. government. This is an article from Ted Carpenter uh, from antiwar.com. 
It's titled Contempt for Press Freedoms. U.S. officials bar Tucker Carlson from interviewing Putin. And here's what he says. Tucker Carlson reports the U.S. government prevented him from interviewing Russian President Vladimir Putin. Carlson told the Swiss magazine Die Weltwosch that he had thought, sought to arrange an interview with Putin, but U.S. officials blocked him. Tucker said, I tried to interview Vladimir Putin, but the U.S. government prevented me from doing so. Think about the implications. This was in an interview on September 24th. Worse, according to Carlson, no one in the U.S. media supported his right as a journalist to report on the Russian leader's views regarding the Ukraine conflict. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button here for a moment and just say, there are people I know, smart people, people whose opinions I respect, who I have seen get get very defensive and, and even reflexive when I have questioned, you know, the, the narrative, well, you know, that Putin's invasion was entirely unprovoked and so forth. I, I don't believe that. I think the U.S. and Ukraine set in motion a situation where Russia felt it had nothing to lose by going in and, uh, and taking control of those breakaway republics. And, and what I usually hear in return for this, well, that's just propaganda. That's Russian propaganda. That's Russian disinformation. You've been duped. Which, look, I'll admit, it's possible. I'm not that smart of a guy, so it's, it's really possible. Maybe I've been duped. But why can't we even consider what the other side has to say? Why, why can't we even weigh it out for ourselves? And that's, to me, that's the epitome of, okay, wait a minute, what are you hiding? When I can't even consider what Vladimir Putin is saying, and I know you can, you can still find his speeches in their entirety, you know, in various sources. Sometimes I think it might just be worth, uh, you know, listening in their own words. And, and look, I, again, I'm going to risk angering more people, but the reasons for 9-11, the reasons why were the Twin Towers attacked? Believe it or not, Osama bin Laden told us the reasons why he had uh, helped set in motion this attacker was going to, um, you know, start attacking U.S. targets. And it had to do with the U.S. establishing military bases on what were considered holy sites or holy places in Saudi Arabia. He also was concerned about uh, the, the unconscionable sanctions killing the very old and the very young in Iraq, and by the way, this is something that the U.S. government actually admitted to. Yes, so so 500,000, you know, very elderly and very young Iraqis died due to sanctions placed on that country by the U.S. government. I believe it was Madeleine Albright who was confronted with that figure, and she didn't back away from it at all. All she did was hesitate for a moment and say, we think it was worth it, you know, to try to force Saddam out of power. That did not sit well with Osama bin Laden and apparently quite a few other people as well. And last but not least, he talked about uh, what, what he saw as an appearance of undue favoritism that the U.S. pays in the Middle East to Israel over other countries. Gee, I don't know where he ever got that idea, but, you know, there it is right out in the open. But look, the bottom line is we were told after 9-11 the reason that those planes were flown into those towers, the reasons the terrorists attacked us, according to George W. Bush, was because they hate our freedoms. Look, even then, that was really the turning point for me. That was one of the big turning points to realize my government's lying. The president is lying. 
It wasn't about hating our freedoms. That wasn't the reason that those uh, those unconscionable attacks were, were carried out. And by the way, in no way does this imply that those, you know, nearly 3,000 people who died on 9-11 deserved what they had coming. All I'm suggesting is Osama bin Laden very clearly spelled out, these are the reasons why we feel that you are fair game to be attacked on your own soil or to have your interests attacked throughout the world. I mean, David Cross, is he's a pretty interesting comedian, funny guy. And a few years ago, he had a comedy bit where he's like, you know what? You know why I think the the attack the hijackers attacked us on 9/11 and he listed through all those things because uh, they were concerned about uh, the American military presence in Saudi Arabia, they were concerned about the uh, the untold deaths, you know, of of half a million people due to sanctions on Iraq. And they were upset about our treatment of Israel above all the other countries in the Middle East. He says, "You know why? You know why I believe that?" Because they freaking told us why. That's why. <laughs> and he's right. And he follows it up with a question. What What are we, six-year-old children, waiting for the government to tell us? Well, no, it's okay to think this, but not this. Look, I, I realize I'm probably poking the bear here. This is maybe irritating a few people, but why would I trust my government to be straight with me on this matter when it has lied to me and deceived on so many others? And so when my government tells me you can't even hear what uh, Vladimir Putin has to say, as in, you know, Tucker Carlson is not allowed to, uh, to interview him, why not? Look, if, if he's really that bad, if he is really, you know, the monster, if he's literally Hitler, like we're being told, shouldn't we be able to figure that out? Tucker's a pretty savvy interviewer. I don't think he's going to sit there and lob softballs at him and, you know, remember this? <laughs> yeah, those were good times, right? Remember? Remember? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's something we could make up our minds on for ourselves. But apparently, to those within power, that's not allowed. Can you see why that's a huge red flag? At least for those of us who want to think clearly and think independently. It's very telling when you are told that uh, not only are those people wrong, but you can't even consider a different point of view than what we are telling you. I don't know. It just seems kind of, what's that word? Totalitarian. So when I come back, I'm going to pick this wound open just a little bit wider. We're going to do a little thought experiment courtesy of Caitlin Johnstone. I think you'll like how she approaches this. At least I hope you'll find it thought provoking. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, I'm leading off today with U.S. officials doing their best to squelch freedom of the press in order to maintain their narrative regarding Russia and Ukraine. And it's uh, it's pretty concerning. I mean, every, everything that deviates from the official narrative from our country is labeled disinformation. And, and I'm just not buying it. I'm seeing obstructionism, especially with the U.S. standing in the way of, uh, of Tucker Carlson actually interviewing Vladimir Putin. Maybe Joe Rogan could pull it off. I don't know. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm a Putin fanboy. I just, I'm just saying I would like to hear from his own 
mouth what exactly, you know, he's about. Look, I learned this a long time ago. You go to the source. When you want to find out what's happening, go to the source. Nothing cemented that in my mind as more essential than watching the press and their treatment of the Bundy family and uh, what happened, you know, on in April of 2014, what happened at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And the sad thing is the vast majority of people out there who, oh, I know all about the Bundys. No, you don't. You know all about what the press told you, which was incomplete and slanted and specifically spun to, to create this, this one-dimensional caricature that in no way represents the family. And so people were absolutely blindsided when Ammon and other defendants were completely acquitted in Oregon. And then when they went on trial in Las Vegas and the judge said, oh, well, on second thought, this is, oh, this is pretty bad. The prosecution did a lot of things that were very unethical, were a shock to justice, and dismissed the case with prejudice. Okay, if you go to the source, those are things that should not be surprising. But most people aren't willing to go to the source. They're just waiting with like a baby bird with their mouth open. <laughs> you know, waiting for some spinmeister to spoon feed what they're supposed to believe to them. So let's try a thought experiment courtesy of Caitlin Johnstone. This is called American State Propaganda. She says, the New York Times has published another CIA press release disguised as news, this time aimed at whipping up paranoia toward anyone who criticizes the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. The article is titled, Putin's Next Target, U.S. Support for Ukraine, Officials Say. Now, the author is Julian E. Barnes, who's written so many New York Times articles with headlines ending in the words, Officials Say, that we can safely assume the primary reason for his continued employment in that paper is because empire managers within the U.S. government have designated him someone who can be trusted to print what they want printed. So this designation would make him a reliable supplier of scoops, in other words, regurgitations of unevidenced government claims for the New York Times. Barnes says, American officials say they are convinced that Mr. Putin intends to try to end U.S. and European support for Ukraine by using his spy agencies to push propaganda supporting pro-Russian political parties and by stoking conspiracy theories with new technologies. Now, here's the crazy part. The report never gets any more specific than that. And of course, the American officials that Barnes cites promote their unevidenced assertions under the cover of complete anonymity. Well, that sounds trustworthy, right? The American officials spoke on the condition that their names not be reported so they could discuss sensitive intelligence. Really? You know, the only named source cited in the article is a CIA veteran named Beth Sanner, who says, Russia will not give up on disinformation campaigns, but adds, we don't know what it's going to look like. And Caitlin Johnstone says that's really the whole article right there. Putin is going to use his spy agency or going to be using his spy agencies to promote political parties and messages which support ending the practice of pouring billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine. But nobody knows what that will look like exactly. So we all just have to be sort of generally distrustful toward anyone who doesn't think it's a swell idea to perpetuate a horrific war with potentially world ending consequences because they might be part of an unspecified Russian influence operation. Isn't that neat how that works out? Now, she says, we saw a similar report from CNN a few weeks ago in which the public was warned that Russia's FSB is working to convert Westerners into mouthpieces for Russian propaganda using methods so sneaky and subtle that those Westerners wouldn't even know it's happening. Gee, do you think that maybe that maybe they got to me? Well, I'd like some payment if, they're, you know, if I'm, I'm being a mouthpiece for them. I 
feel like I should at least be compensated for my time. Come on, cough up some rubles here, buddy. Again, details were extremely vague. The only obvious response to the information provided is for everybody to get really paranoid toward anyone saying anything that doesn't support current U.S. foreign policy toward Russia. So as a thought experiment, she says, imagine what it would look like if the CIA or some other agency wanted to advance U.S. information interests by making the public distrustful of any people or information which go against U.S. strategic objectives. Try to imagine some of the things they might say or do. And do you imagine it would look much different than what we're seeing currently? Feeding trusted mainstream news reporters extremely vague stories about the Kremlin trying to deceive people into opposing the long-standing agendas of the U.S. intelligence cartel, using online media and social subversion? Can you think of a more effective way to help shore up trust in your preferred narratives and sow distrust in narratives you do not prefer? So here's another one. Imagine a state media outlet for a tyrannical dictatorship. Think about how its news stories are made, how it would often take orders from government on what to report, or what not to report, and how all its printing or broadcasting would always align with the information interests of that government. Now ask yourself, in what material way is that reporting different from these CIA press releases we're seeing from outlets like the New York Times and CNN? In both scenarios, the government is feeding the media information it wants printed, and in both scenarios, there will be consequences if the media don't obey. Now, in our hypothetical dictatorship, those consequences might be more severe, but in our real-life scenario, the consequences are no less real. So, for example, if Mr. Barnes had refused to work on this story, he would have lost his scoop, and it would have been given to someone else, perhaps at a competing outlet. If Barnes ceased uncritically reporting evidenced, unevidenced rather, assertions from anonymous government officials, his prominence in the mainstream media would quickly fizzle, and his career would dry up. If the New York Times ceased functioning as a reliable outlet for the credulous printing of unevidenced government claims, then the government agencies who've been elevating the paper to prominence with their artificial scoops can take those hot stories to another competing outlet and let them get the subscriptions and the glory. In both scenarios, the government's able to get its propaganda messaging printed as hard news reporting. In one scenario, the reporter reports what the government wants because they work for the government. In the other scenario, the reporter reports what the government wants because that's the only way to have a career in media outlets that are owned and controlled by the plutocrats who benefit from the political status quo the government is premised upon. Boom. She could drop the mic right there. The only major difference, she says, is that in our hypothetical dictatorship, the public probably knows that it's being fed propaganda and is therefore more likely to take what they're being told with a grain of salt. Now, in a tyrannical dictatorship, the press is operated by employees of the government. In a free democracy, trademark, the press is operated by employees of the oligarchs who operate the government. Bottom line, though, is in both cases you're getting state propaganda, but in one of them the propaganda is disguised as objective news reporting. That's as well as I've seen it explained. So a tip of the hat to Caitlin Johnstone for for putting it in those terms. Look, I grew up as a kid, you know, with the Cold War going on. I watched Red Dawn. I remember Red Dawn scared the crap out of a lot of us. We felt like, man, that's really plausible. 
We still refer to it as the historical training documentary in my house, but I am not convinced that uh, this this idea that you cannot listen or you cannot even entertain the idea that uh, that what what Russia has to say or what anybody else has to say contrary to the U.S. government's narrative on Ukraine is somehow Russian disinformation. That's a distinction I will make for myself. But first, I need to have access to enough information to have a well-informed opinion. Do you see the dilemma? My government says, no, no, we don't want you to have that. To which I have to ask, and why not? What's wrong with your side of the story that it won't hold up to either further truth or facts or, for that matter, further scrutiny? Houston, I think we have a problem. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now that I've succeeded in angering all five of my listeners, let me take the remaining two (laughs) who are grudgingly sticking it out to see if I'll say anything of value today. And I'm going to take this in a little more positive direction. So it's just a few weeks ago that I discovered uh, this writer on Substack by the name of uh, Jeff Einstein. I've had him on the show a couple of times. I intend to have him back again because he is, uh, I think this is a guy who gets it. I'm convinced that uh, this is a guy who, I mean, Jeff has been at this for a long time. And I don't know if he has had a sense that he's been laboring in obscurity, but uh, his message could not be more timely than it is right now. So there's there's something in the back of my mind that wonders if, if uh, Jeff Einstein's time has not come. Now, this is the guy with the substack titled uh, The Reality, I'm sorry, The Quality of Life Resistance Movement, or qolrm.substack.com. There's a link in today's show notes that'll take you there. He's been writing for a long time. I think his message is right on target. And I want to share his, his essay, Better Safe But Sorry, which describes so much of what's going on around us. Jeff writes, so far the official 21st century narrative of the ruling elite has been all about sacrificing freedom for safety. Safety from foreign terrorism, safety from offensive language, safety from financial collapse, safety from Putin, safety from COVID, and more recently and most ominously, safety from domestic terrorism. In the past few generations, we've gone from God-fearing to fearing everything but God. Now he says freedom is a spiritual life force. The manufactured urge to swap freedom for safety here and in other Western democracies represents a spiritual crisis of biblical proportion, just as it did in the former Soviet Union and still does in communist China, North Korea, and Cuba. It reflects a premeditated and deliberate elimination of religious faith and, in the absence of faith, gives rise to a dearth of hope. According to Mussolini, a man who might have known, fascism is corporatism, the marriage of state and corporate power. The first order of business for all fascist regimes, whether they manifest in primarily theocratic, democratic, free market, or socialist economies, is the elimination of organized religion to make way for the new religion of the state. It happened in Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, and Cuba. It's happening right now in Western Europe under the EU. 
in Canada under Justin Trudeau, and here at home in the U.S. under Joe Biden. Justice democracy was the default organizing bias of print for the better part of two centuries after the Enlightenment. Fascism is the default organizing bias of all electronic media. No coincidence, therefore, that secular fascism first emerged as a potent socio-economic model in the early 20th century, concurrent with the rise of commercial music, the telephone, radio, and motion pictures. Now, Jeff Einstein says what distinguishes 21st century fascism from its 20th century counterpart, however, is digital scale. The media-driven industrial secularization of modern Western democracies in the first half of the 20th century was charged, supercharged by the microchip, electronic spreadsheet, and the explosion of digital media in the late 20th century. What remained of organized religion didn't stand a chance by the early 21st. Ever opportunistic, fascism rushed in to fill the void left behind by the orchestrated destruction of organized religion and the associated meaningful rituals that once kept families and communities intact. Rituals like the Sabbath day of rest and the family dinner table, just to name two. Fade out. Now fade in. The EU is now a thoroughly fascistic 21st century response to the systematic secularization of European culture over the last few generations. Precisely what has transpired here at home, where more recently blue states and cities locked down their populations and imposed science-free vaccine and mask mandates in the cynical name of public safety. By the way, just as an aside here, right now the authorities who did those things are denying them right to our faces. We never did that. We never forced anyone. You're just imagining this. My purest rage starts to bubble to the surface when I see that kind of gaslighting because I remember all too well what it was like to be part of the marginalized part of society who was told you have no right to even be out in public or to function in public because you're not bending the knee like these good, obedient people are. Anyway, back to to Jeffrey Einstein's article. These same states and cities are precisely where systematically oppressed inner-city populations, methodically stripped of faith, hope, and fatherhood, murder each other in nihilistic despair, and in some jurisdictions abort as many babies as are born by design. The manufactured dearth of faith and hope in blue cities and states is the real reason why people of any means are voting with their feet and relocating themselves and their families to freer, more hopeful venues like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and other red states. In other words, it isn't just about opportunity. It's about freedom. In the 21st century, perceived threats to our safety are manufactured and disproportionately amplified by a ruling elite whose only real concern is the accrual of power and wealth for themselves in a protracted class war against the poor and middle-class people of all colors worldwide. The actual threat to our safety comes from the inevitable cascade of events that follows the cowardly decision to relinquish our freedoms for the false promise of comfort and safety. The cheap flea market swap of our civil liberties for the mere promise of safety can only end in the totalitarian collapse of Western civilization. And he reminds us of the quote from Benjamin Franklin. People willing to trade their freedom for temporary security deserve neither and will lose both. Now, Jeff Einstein says, worse than losing freedom and security is the epiphany that settles over us like a nuclear winter just moments after the ash of regret reminds us of what we gave away. For nothing. Worse is the accusing whisper of our children 
who will never know the exhilaration of what we once knew as children, but feel deep in their bones as a sentient longing nonetheless, an instinctive yearning for the unmistakable life force we stole from them to appease our own fears. You didn't lose them at all, comes their indictment, pitiless and pointed like a bony finger at our hearts. You gave them away for nothing. In the end, we find neither solace nor pity in our solitude, only the hollow and empty ache of what was once once magnificent and now, like a missing limb, is no more. Finally comes the realization that we have given away our birthright in exchange for the pandering sucker of a digital dopamine rush. For the paralyzing opium dreams of opium addicts sold to us by an endless bazaar of commercial opium dealers. A techno-media cartel that makes the Mexican drug cartels look like nickel bag dealers in high school bathrooms. Nothing more. Ben Franklin knew it all along. Andrew Tate knows it today. None of these things make us safer, not the Patriot Act, nor the Department of Homeland Security, not safe spaces on college campuses, not gun control, not COVID lockdowns and mandates, not the war on domestic terror, not one of them makes us safer. Every single one of them, he says, is a high-octane scam concocted by overeducated corporate raiders and government bottom feeders to steal our freedom while while they enrich and empower themselves. And in the end, government cannot guarantee our freedom. Government can only take our freedom away. In the end, only we can guarantee our own freedom, but only if we agree that it's worth protecting in the first place. Better safe but sorry is the epitaph awaiting all of us, unless we rise to reject the fascist envoys of fear before it's too late. That is such a good essay that I actually am going to recommend. If you can find the time and you have the desire... Go to my show notes, click on the link, and go back and reread that maybe a couple of times. I find as I read Jeff's essays, there's, there's a lot of depth here. It's worth going back and revisiting it. But tell me that this man does not see clearly what's happening. And I think his solutions... Okay, I'm not going to say Jeff, Jeff Einstein has the only true solution. I'm, I'm sure there are other solutions out there as well. I am going to say, though, his solutions do make a great deal of sense. The idea that first and foremost, we need to turn away from the screens, right? Our digital addiction. I hate that I recognize as I pick up my phone and turn it toward my face. I recognize in that moment going for another dopamine fix. But I still pick it up. That's the epitome of addiction. I also like his recommendation of reestablishing ritual, like the family dinner, building traditions, things that uh, that we've lost track of. And of course, uh, the really important part, and to me, this this is the the most essential part. You've got to get your ducks in, in order. You've got to fix yourself. There's a podcaster out there by the name of Andy Frisella. You've heard me refer to him before. Andy's got a potty mouth. He's a very direct speaker, but man, that guy speaks the truth. One of the things that he preaches is the most revolutionary act of rebellion that you can commit is to become the best possible version of yourself, to become a truly excellent person. And that's at every level. Become more intelligent, become more physically fit, become more mentally engaged. When you do that, you remove the power of the power seekers over you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We have two articles to touch on in the closing segment of today's program. I don't mean to uh, to make you feel bad, but uh, every time I go to the store, it's it's a bit of an experience. I, I, I don't sit there and track every single price that's gone up, but I notice. Does that make sense? Right? Something, I, I, I don't have it, you know, down to the penny and I'm checking against price lists. Okay, this was only $5.45 last week. This week it's $7. But I notice the stuff that goes up and it's the stuff that I buy regularly. Somebody sent a video to me yesterday. Actually, a couple people sent me this video of a guy walking around Costco and he actually has been, you know, taking snapshots, you know, taking video with his phone. Okay, here's how much this is of items that he regularly buys. And I believe the figure he came up with is those prices are roughly 17% higher than they were just a few short months ago. It's not like, oh, yeah, a couple of years ago. Well, sure, inflation's been going on for a while. It's crazy. My point is simply this, though. We are feeling the pinch. More and more people are like, holy cow, I'm spending more money every month for just the same standard of living or maybe even a slightly declining standard of living. What can be done? And this is where the great danger is that government will say, well, not to fear, citizen. We're here to step in and we'll enforce price controls to make sure those greedy businesses aren't somehow, you know, making out over you. So I've got this article I'm including today from Vincent Geloso. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. He says the 1970s called and they want their economic policy back. Now he's talking about how price controls don't fight inflation. We have 40 years of evidence showing this. Now he says it may sound like a cheap quip against the growing popularity of attempts to control prices in the face of inflation. After all, France is implementing price controls right now. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also forced grocery stores to explain price hikes with the hint that he might start doing the same. These policies and scapegoating of businesses are the same as in the 1970s, hence the quip. But he says, I could have also quipped about any number of historical examples. The 1940s, the 1930s in Germany, the 1910s, the 1790s in France, and on and on. After all, as one aptly titled book made explicit, 40 centuries of wage and price controls teach us exactly how not to fight inflation. Now, the best way to understand why is by invoking an analogy about thermometers and temperature that Milton Friedman employed when inflation was a big issue in the 1960s and 70s. Prices function somewhat like a thermometer inside your house. They indicate the point where the quantities that producers are willing to supply to the market match the quantities consumers demand based on their available budget. Monetary policy, for its part, is the thermostat. If the thermostat says that the temperature is going up, it's either because there are some changes in the economy in general, in other words, the outside temperature, or because someone turned up the thermostat. Sometimes it can be a mixture of both factors, in other words, loose monetary policy and supply shocks occurring simultaneously. Distinguishing between them is not an easy task. People who would propose to impose price controls are essentially trying to break the thermometer by preventing it from showing the rising temperature and claiming the problem is solved. I do like that analogy, by the way. But this approach doesn't address the underlying issue. Instead, it deprives us of information about its scope and, pro and progression. All it does is create noise around the price signals because the underlying fundamental factors like monetary policy, factors that affect productivity, etc., are unchanged. As such, the fact that measured prices stop increasing when the government enforces price controls doesn't mean that real prices stop rising. Something must give. 
With controlled prices, people either wait in line, suffer some form of rationing, be offered lower quality goods, or be forced to engage in involuntary substitution toward less desirable goods. And he says historical examples of each of these consequences of price controls abound. And he gives some of those examples. So I'm just going to skip to the chase here. He says, look, I could keep going. Price controls have been studied by economic historians in the case of the French Revolution, many countries during and soon after World War I, the 301 AD price edict of the Emperor Diocletian, the Song Dynasty's 13th century experiments with paper money, and the attempt to quash inflation with price controls, and even the price and wage controls of the Nixon administration. But every one of them point to the same thing. Price controls do not stop inflation They only make things worse. So if prices are going up, it's either because monetary policy is too loose or because the economy suffered a decline in productivity. There is no way around it. The only solutions are to tighten monetary policy or enact reforms that promote productivity growth. Everything else is a fool's errand that ends in economic pain. So says Vincent Geloso from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is a really good article. I think you would find yourself well-served and you would definitely understand better next time someone pipes up, well, you know, we need some price controls here. Keep these greedy gas stations and grocery stores from gouging us. They're not going to make it better. They're only going to make it worse. All right. I've shared with you a couple of things today which I'm sure illustrate the, uh, the growing darkness and the challenge in front of us. It seems daunting. I want to share with you an article from Dan Sanchez. This is from earlier this year, published by the Foundation for Economic um, Education. A Legacy of Light. And he's recounting uh, an example that uh, Leonard E. Reed used to use to illustrate the power of one individual being a source of light for the people around them. Dan says, we are living in dark times. The Leviathan state has cast its shadow over the world, leaving economic devastation, war, and civil strife in the wake of its rampage. The light of liberty seems barely a flicker on the verge of being extinguished. Yet never underestimate the power that even the smallest of lights can have against the darkness. That was the message Leonard E. Reed delivered many times over in his famous candle presentation. At the end of every fee seminar, Reed would turn out the lights in the lecture hall and turn on an electric candle, dimmed to its lowest wattage. This little light engulfed by so much darkness would look hopelessly overwhelmed. But looks can be deceiving. What then, he would ask, is the purpose of this wee candle? Well, maybe there's just enough light for one standing right here to find and light his own candle. Those two may make it possible for others right nearby to find and light their own candles, and it might go on until everyone in this room has lit their candles. Now, that's a direct quote transcribed from a recording of one of Reed's talks available on YouTube. Do you see the picture here? A single candle can spark a brush fire of enlightenment, and as Reed pointed out, the surrounding darkness is powerless to stop it. In the same way, even amid pervasive ignorance and disdain for liberty, One person who understands the truth can, by sharing his understanding with others, kick off a chain reaction of learning and a resurgence of liberty. Now that may seem naively optimistic, but Reed was speaking from experience. He lived through dark times too. In fact, one would be hard-pressed to find a year more dismal than 1933. That year began inauspiciously with Adolf Hitler becoming Chancellor of Germany. 
It was also the second year of the Holodomor terror famine that Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin inflicted on Ukraine, killing millions. And in America, 1933 was the worst year of the Great Depression and the first year of the New Deal. An economic disaster caused by interventionist government policies was met with even greater government intervention, which only did more damage. Sound familiar? Anti-freedom ideologies, communism, Nazism, and New Dealism were ascendant. Central planning was widely considered the wave of the future, and the ideas of liberty that had emancipated and enriched the West were disregarded as obsolete relics of the past. Now, even Leonard Reed was no exception to the interventionist zeitgeist. In 1933, he was a loyal New Dealer, enforcing the party line among the business community as a high-ranking official in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He actually had a meeting with a dissenter and went to his office to send him, set him straight. And this was a conversation with William Mullendore, who then spoke with Leonard Reed for an hour, analyzing and refuting, patiently explaining personal liberty or individual liberty and private property. And according to Leonard Reed, it was the best explanation he'd ever heard. Reed called that experience a sudden illumination. He instantly saw the light that Mullendore had shared with him. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, the scales fell from his eyes, and the man who walked into that office as an anti-liberty inquisitor walked out as one of liberty's mightiest apostles. Reed promptly began using his enormous influence as a chamber official to spread the light of liberty and vigorously oppose the New Deal. So never underestimate the power of even a single light to drive back the darkness and illuminate the world. And I know we like to flatter ourselves, you know, as well, but I'm just one light. What good could I possibly do? I guess my point is we don't know. Because we don't know who around us is actively looking for that light. So as long as you're providing illumination, even if you can't see someone actively looking for it, you don't know whose eye you may have caught or who you may have inspired to, to step up and become better informed, to become educated, to become not just a cheerleader, but a disciple of liberty. That's why we have to keep that light burning. And that starts with, again, improving ourselves first and foremost. This is The Brian Hyde Show.